So go write down a thing that you love the most about one of your bosses, someone who, who was a leader for you. Write down something. And then he had this wall and it was on one side, it was, is this a matter of the heart or is this something of the, the head? So I love that they generated X amount of dollars that, or they did this kind thing for me. Yeah. And so everyone wrote down a, a thing that stood out to them by a, a leader that they had. And then they went and they put these notes up on the board and it was all about the heart. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Cap and Gown. Season four, episode seven. I'm Rachel Phillips Buck, VP for Student Success, joined today by our president, Matt Blaubert. Hey, Matt. Hi, Rachel. Great to join you today. Thanks yeah, for having me. Thanks for joining me. got my glasses on today. They're new. Can you see better? I can. I can see really well. Nice. That's a yeah. good success story. Um, you guys, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Whether you're joining us on LinkedIn, where you can follow us so that you will um, get notifications every time we do a new episode. Some of you are joining us on YouTube. You can subscribe on YouTube. Um, let's see. What are the other choices? You may be listening to us on Spotify or Apple Spotify. Music or wherever you're finding your podcast. Thank you so much for spending this time with us, Matt, especially because we are in crunch season on our campuses. Yeah. If you think about registration and everything that's going on, so many of our campuses are in this kind of persistence campaign where they're trying to get students registered before they go home for Thanksgiving to talk about how it's going. Right. Um, I was reminded that this is advising season today. Do you know how? Oh, you were told to register for your classes? No, my, oh, nose, my nose is very runny. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys, I'm going to share with you one of the most embarrassing things that have, has ever happened to me, which is about this time of year when I was registering a student, I was filling out his registration document and I leaned over and my nose dripped right on his uh, advising form. And he just looked down at it and then he looked at me and I was like, sorry, let me get you another one. <laughs> so this time of year when my nose is running, I'm like, must be time uh, for advising. Time for advising. <laughs> um, Thanksgiving is right around the corner. Which I know. I'm super excited about. Do you have anything to say about that? <laughs> well, it's my favorite holiday. Yeah, I'm I, excited. We did a poll the other day of Ferris um, employees, and a lot of them, November is their favorite month. So that's pretty fun. Yeah, lots to be thankful for. So looking forward to that. For sure. All right. We, yes. You well, I was, trying to, I, was, I was trying to think where we last were. So we, we missed a, a cap and gown because we were traveling. You have a joy word for us? Oh, can you hear me? Yeah. I do have a joy word for you. Okay. Uh, let's see here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put this up because uh this is a Norwegian word and I'm gonna try it. I've I've been practicing, but at a pukluk skarp. I and but you say it really fast if you're Nor Norwegian, it just rolls right off the tongue. Yeah, okay. Um, but listen, this word, so this. First of all, it comes from the book, Happiness Found in Translation, a glossary of joy from around the world. And uh, so this one really um, stood out to me because, so it's Norwegian. It means after wisdom. It is the knowledge you gain from making a mistake. It's oh. development through trial and error, which I think is just perfect for our conversation today and some of the things that we're talking about. So. We are going to be talking about that. Thank you. That is a good, um, a good word. It's unfortunate that it's not going to be one I'm probably going to incorporate into my vocabulary <laughs> because it's yeah. so difficult. But maybe we could just be like, you know, that Norwegian word. Yeah, I, we'll, yeah. we'll ask Savannah if she can help us on the pronunciation. Okay, sounds good. All right, you guys, we are going to talk today about a book called Everyday People, Extraordinary Leadership. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a minute. Um, the idea here that no matter what your position, your title, your role, authority, 
you can make a difference in what you do, which I think is especially relevant for our listeners as well as for our students. So I think it's going to be a great conversation. Um, but first, we have the State of the Union. All right, Matt, a couple of articles for you um, for today. Um, one of them I'm actually going to spend a pretty long time on because I'm very distressed about this article and I want for us to just camp out on it for a little bit, but I'm going to leave it until one of our last ones. So one interesting thing is that um, moving forward, May 2024 in Oregon, lawyers no longer have to take the bar exam. So that's pretty interesting. Um, they basically are like, we don't love the bar exam. We don't feel like it's measuring what it should be measuring. The bar people actually agree with it and they're revamping it. That's not going to come out until 2026 though. So in the meantime, the Oregon Supreme Court just approved an alternate licensing program where students have to take uh, 675 or do 675 hours of supervision with an experienced attorney. And then they have to build this whole portfolio of eight examples of legal writing. They have to take the lead in at least two initial client interviews. They have to head up two negotiations. They have to just do a bunch of stuff. And then they submit their portfolio to the Oregon bar examiners who grade it and decide whether or not they can be lawyers. So that's pretty yeah. interesting. I don't know how... I'm just wondering if this is the the future of some other professionals, like a CPA, yeah. instead of having to take the CPA exam. Um, I mean, Practice. as you were breaking that down, it it is a pretty significant uh, workload or, or requirement yeah. in order. To practice law there. It is more like an apprenticeship than it is a kind of test and certification, right? Where yeah. you're like working, doing the work, learning as you do the work. So I like that. Counselors are like that. Yeah. We have to do a lot of hours of counseling under supervision before and pass the test, but a lot of hours of supervision before we can practice. Um, there's another article that I'm just going to refer to. It is about how California is trying to get all uh, high school, not trying to get, passed a law that all high school seniors have to complete the FAFSA, um, which is really interesting because the whole article is about how they have a very vulnerable high school population, how counselors in that high, those high schools are very overworked. Um, I've never heard this statistic before, but the American School Counselor Association says that the right ratio for counselors to students is um, 250 to 1 in a high school. Okay. And then in California, the average is 509 to 1. Yikes. So first of all, right? Yeah. Then they've just added this, trying to get all students to apply for the FAFSA which obviously there's a lot of difficulties um, with that. Uh, just like, just the most like self uh, propelling person has a hard time filling out the FAFSA. You know what I mean? Like you've got to get all the documents and all the stuff and all the things. It's a really difficult thing to fill out, much less if you have any gaps in your paperwork or if your parents are first generation, they don't know how to do that. So. California is really investing in trying to make sure that they have their students um, fill out the FAFSA. But this comes with the FAFSA's deadline being pushed back to December. Right. So now they have a shorter amount of time to fill it out and they're going to have higher volume. So there's just a lot of um, difficulty that are coming out of that. But Matt, for the first time, I got some clarity on some of the changes that are coming from the FAFSA. So this is what okay. they're pulling out differently. It used to be that there were 103 questions. A chunk of those were like, go find your tax return and fill in all of these numbers. Well, they've changed it now so that the application is going to be pre-populated with some of that data that's coming from your tax. They're like, we're the government. We have both of those. Why don't we just tell you what, you, what your tax return was? And the it's kind of a smart form where if um, certain things don't relate to you, they skip them. So the most questions an applicant is going to have to fill out now is just 
36 questions and it could be less than that depending on what other things you have that are applicable. Yeah. Okay. So that's, I know that we're frustrated about it, but that's worth waiting for, in my opinion. But why is it taking so long? It's the government. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. Well, I, I can tell you, I was just on a campus doing a, a college visit with my daughter, and, and they're nervous about this FAFSA being so delayed. Yeah, I think yeah, everybody's I nervous. They did push back the deadline now. It's April 1st, I guess, before it was March 1st to get it filled out. Now it's April 1st, so they're trying to have some wiggle room in there. But it's just, it's going to be very difficult, I think, for yeah. Um, Okay, also in other news related to financial aid, the U.S. Education Department is going to press forward with a secret shopper program to ensure that companies properly service student loans they're doing that now specifically because millions of borrowers who um, had a break during the pandemic, they're starting to have to repay. Mm. So there's going to be an uptick in that. Also, um, the education department just withheld $7.2 million in payments to a loan servicer because they, they, the loan servicer, didn't send billing statements on time to 2.5 million of their borrowers. So- yeah, so the education department is just like, we've got to figure out what to do here. Secret shoppers are going to go through the entire loan process and report back on how the servicers are doing, as well as listen in on some phone calls between the borrower and customer service representatives, and then give them a grade. Um, and I think they're giving them a, a grade in relation to other servicers. So we're going to have like... The consumer reports for college loans. Yeah. Exactly, which I think cool. that's a great idea. I think it's a great idea. I mean, it, yep. I want to see the results. Yeah, for sure. Okay, there's a really great article out of usnews.com, what first-generation college students really need. This is written, um, let me see if I have, oh, I took out the woman's name. But this is written by a what she says is a first and only college student. So she was the first one in her family to go to college. Instead of first-gen, she talks about it in terms of first and only. Um, we missed National First Generation College Celebration Day, which is November 8th. So put that on your calendar. That would be such an awesome thing to, to celebrate on your yeah. campus. Um, but she talks about in this article, one third of all college students in the U.S. are first gen, which that's fascinating. Um, notably, 70 percent of all Latino college students are first gen, which is really remarkable. Um, she talks a little bit about the hardships of that. In fact, she wrote a book, um, and this is coming out of her experience uh, in that kind of trail, she calls it a trailblazer to uh, toll, which is like when you go through, there's a lot of pride, but there's also this, this toll that it takes on you, right, as yeah. you're trying to, to make your way in that. Um, Matt, you and I talked about this. This is really surprising. So first of all, 65% of respondents who are first-generation college students, she did a survey, 65% of respondents believe that the experience of navigating college as a first-gen student had a negative effect on their emotional and mental health, which is really fascinating because we don't talk really? about that piece very much. And then of first-generation students whose parents have no education beyond high school, only 20% have completed their bachelor's degrees. That's so, the one that's shocking to me. I mean, so when we go to a school and we're like, pick a thing, just pick it. Like you want to identify a population of students who are going to need extra support and extra resources, pick those students, right? Because clearly yeah. there's a, a big struggle there. Two more things coming out of this article that I think are interesting. One is that there is no definition of first generation students that's ubiquitous. So some schools say if your parents don't have a college degree, you're first generation. Some schools say if your parents never went to college, you are first generation. So it depends. Um, and, and the services that you get will be different depending on kind of how your school defines that. And then the last thing that I thought was really interesting was of all services offered to first generation students, the ones that these um, students who are interviewed 
said is the most important resource for them is mental health support. Isn't that surprising? I just, I, so it, it is, um, well, as you say all of that, putting all of that together, just that burden, the toll that it takes, yeah. the, the weight of being the first, um, especially today, I, I just think, yeah. So knowing that, um, so as you say, pick, pick a population, here's a population, only one in, out of five first-gen students are, are actually graduating yeah. after they start, but here's a way that we can support them yeah. and, and let them know that there are some really good resources to help them with that toll. Yeah. They were we saying- be experts in that. Right. Even above academic support, that mental health piece. And you and I were saying earlier, like saying to a first generation student, we have counseling is not the right thing to say. Saying right. to them, when you feel overwhelmed, when you're stressed out about your schedule, when you're worried because your family doesn't understand what you're doing, like you need to say to them, here's the mental toll that this would take on you. And then here's the resource that we have for that. Because I don't think, do you need counseling? I mean, I don't know that those students would be like, yeah, I do need counseling. I think that you've got to list out the problems and then say, this is the way we can solve that. And the, exactly what you always say is like, so predicting, you're going to have a, a there's going to be a time yeah. when you're going to feel this way. And these are the resources for you. It's yeah. really good. That's great. Okay. Um, let's see. A couple more just for you guys to be thinking about. One is um, there's an article out of University Business, which is talking about how our career centers are kind of not doing a great job. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I'm just saying in general, um, the way that students are engaging with career centers is not great. Um, NACE said 26% of students in, in this, again, survey, 26% uh, of students use their career center for help with internships. Only 21% take part in mock interviews and 21% visit for network preparation. So we're not doing a great job of engaging students. Um, my guess would be, and Matt, you and I know from working in the Career Center, students who come and do that without a concerted push to get them in don't need us. Like they, they're, <laughs> they're doing a great job, right? Yeah. They're already like really thinking about jobs and that sort of thing. So you have to yeah. be really creative about how you pull in students who maybe wouldn't necessarily engage with you. Yeah. Um, also, another thing this article says is that students are not prepared to articulate their skills. So um, this article is talking about how if you really want an effective employee, you don't look at major, you look at skills, you're way more likely to get a good fit for you. The difficulty though, is that students aren't able to say, here's what I can do. And so just working with them to be able to give a clear indication of I can communicate well, I can manage a team, I can, whatever those things are, is really important for um, employers right now. I mean, 21 years ago, Rachel started doing this. Uh, yeah. Career readiness, getting students to think about, you know, all the things that they're actually doing, not what the class, what their classes were. Yeah. what projects they did, um, thinking ahead about internships their freshman year, not their end of their junior year. So, yeah, well, yeah it's frustrating. But I would say that, you know, part of it, um, you know, there's there's just a lot of handoff to some software vendors to just provide the the job opportunities. And, and it's not... It's not local leadership, which we're also talking about yeah. today. Yeah, I agree with you. All right. One small thing. Um, let's see. Right now, the U.S. Department of Labor has proposed a change that is going to take place in August, I think. That is going to change the amount of money that somebody makes to be eligible for overtime. So right now, if you make $35,000 or less, you are eligible to, to receive overtime pay. They are about to change it to be $55,000 or less. So you have a population on your campus likely that now is going to be bumped into overtime status. And 
you should be thinking about what you're going to do about that. So they were saying sometimes that's okay because the difference in, in cost. So, so the two choices are you pay them overtime or you increase their salary to be above the threshold. And you have to think about what are the job tasks. And if they only work overtime every once in a while, you might right. keep them where they are and pay them overtime. If it's going to be like all of a sudden you're paying them $20,000 in overtime, it would be better for you to bump their salary forward. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, this is going to be really interesting. Just the ripple effect, right? I mean, yeah. through, throughout a campus, thinking about 12-month versus 10-month positions and how that could be yeah. used. There's there's a lot yeah. uh, that will come out of this. And just thinking about how you can start preparing for that now, because no. that's going to happen in August. All right. The article that I am very distressed about <laughs> just to be really honest, is this article that comes out of um, the, let's see, do I have the, it's the Hertz, uh, oh here, the Heckinger, Heckinger Report. It's an article on satisfactory academic progress, which Matt, you and I have worked in higher ed for a really long time. This article kind of uncovering what happens for students who have this status put on them and how awful it is has kind of upset me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Let me just tell you about it. So this comes out of federal rules. It's a policy that was created in 1976. It was like, hey, we want to protect students who are not making good forward progress in their degree. We don't want them to be laden with a lot of debt. We don't think it's a good idea for us to give them federal money if they're never going to actually get their degree. So we have to put in some standards where we're like, if you're not making forward progress on your degree, we are going to say you're no longer eligible for any federal money. Okay. So it was created in 76. Then in 1981, they gave more like stringent rules around what it means. Um, under federal rules, a student has to maintain a 2.0 GPA or higher and complete at least 67% of the credits they attempt and stay on track to finish a degree in no more than 150% of the time it usually takes. So it's like if it's a four-year degree and you're on track to complete it in six years, that's okay. Okay. Well, this article is about how, first of all, it's inequitably uh, assessed. So colleges have different rules. Some of them are like, oh, no, we've decided you actually need to get a 70 or 80 percent completion or no, we've decided that you have to have a GPA for overall, like overall GPA, not just semester GPA. So it's not well regu regulated. But the problem is that once you get this applied to you, you can no longer ever, ever, ever get federal financial aid. So if you are a single mom who is working your way through school and you get this applied to you, you're done with college. Unless you can find some money to re-enroll to get your GPA, GPA up to then get it taken off. Or, wow. yeah, or you can appeal it, but schools don't like this because they're afraid of the fines if they do it wrong. So many schools are like super, um, what's that called? Like not, not stingy, but like, stringent. They're, yeah, they're, they're very careful about offering appeals and accepting appeals. And in fact, a college doesn't have to offer an appeal. So you could have that put on you and your college doesn't have to say there's a way for you to mitigate that or remediate that in some way. And once you have this designation, you're saying then that's like a federal designation that you can't enroll in another at any institution. No, you cannot. That is like when you go to, to apply for federal money, they're like, nope, you're you have this put on you. And so that's it. So, wow. First of all. Yeah. Well, um, I would really encourage you guys to read this article because it is about a woman who at a community college was like, hey, we're going to start being way more generous with how we do appeals. We're going to offer people the opportunity to get out of this. And she's like, 
we have a bunch of students who did a great job because we let them come back in. It's not that they're not able to be successful. It's just, it's going to take them a little bit longer or they are having a harder time in a certain group of class. So I'm really hoping there's actually a new, um, what's a bill? Is it a bill? There's a new bill um, that is being considered, which is like, hey, we've got to rethink how we do this. Let's see. 2020 bill um, was put into Congress. It did not get approved, but now it has some more support. And so they're going to bring it back and say, we just have to figure out a better way to allow students who have a little bit of struggle. I was saying, Matt, the hard part is it's like the student in this article, the way she got back to college to increase her GPA so she could get this designation taken off of her was she got her COVID relief fund check, which which made it so she could straight pay for college. And then she got a great grade in her class. And she was like, oh, it's not that I'm dumb. It's that right then I was having a hard time. Now I'm in a better place to be able to be successful. And then she could apply for federal money because she had that opportunity. But not everyone will have that opportunity, right? I think there's a great opportunity for, for your institution to think about this. Like, so can you do, is there a way that you could allow a student to, um, recover, right? So I don't know. Yeah. There seems like there ought to be some some better solutions than you can never, ever, 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 ever go back to college. I mean, don't you think that you could just have a grant to be like, what does it take for you to raise your GPA? Okay, we're going to grant you one class so that you can do that. Because, because the payoff is you could have a student Huge. for the next four years. Yeah. Huge. Fully enrolled. Yeah. So I'm I am going to have to dig into this a little bit. I would not be surprised. You guys look for a future episode. I will have Brayden, who is our registrar expert, come and talk to me about it. Uh, I'm going to start when I'm working with schools, asking them, what is your policy on this? How are you interpreting that? Can you appeal all of those pieces? Because yeah. it just seems like such a, uh, why? Why are we doing that, right? You and I were talking about unintended consequences. I understand you're trying to protect students from too much debt and not forward progress. But the unintended consequences of that is sometimes they're just going through a hard thing. And now you've put punctuation on that where they can never come back and be successful. Yeah. And that's Wild. not a good plan. So good. you will hear more about that from me. I, I'm kind of outraged. Okay. <laughs> that is the state of the <laughs> Yeah. When I, when I find things like this that are just unjust, my eight wing comes out and I've, <laughs> I got to do a thing about it. So. Bring some justice to this. Well, uh, yeah, well, good transition here as we dive into this book to talk about challenging the process, right? I mean, that's a, this is a huge opportunity yeah. Um, yeah. To, to make a difference by challenging that process. Okay, so we're going to talk about this book, Everyday People, Extraordinary Leadership, How to Make a Difference Regardless of Your Title, Role, or Authority. And Matt, you and I are happy for different reasons that I have found this book. I will just, <laughs> I will just um, let everybody behind the curtain for a moment and say that we have conflict sometimes as we're talking about things in higher uh, education when you are like, but people should just do these things, right? Like change, lead, lead. They should just lead. And I'm like, I know Matt, but not everybody has a position where they can just say, we're going to change what we do about SAP. And this is how we're going to move forward. Right. And yeah. so we're always negotiating, like, how do we give people things that they can do given their positional power? And how do we inspire them to say, there are things you can do. So this idea that you can make a difference regardless of your title, role, or authority makes everybody right here happy, right? <laughs> yeah, and our, our well, we have a, a mutual friend and, and who's a, a big time Kuzis and Posner fan. So yeah, I thought that's where you were going with this. But yes, I, I think to so many times uh, as we're talking, we always have to balance it with, but our, but our friends don't have the positional power. And there's a lot of, people who don't have that positional power to really change their institution. But we also know a lot of people who have made huge changes at their institution, regardless of their level, right? For so sure. 
So okay. I'm, I'm excited to go through this. So let me set the framework of these two researchers have been doing research on leadership for about 45 years. They uh, do interviews with people. I think for this book, they did like 29,000 interviews. Plus they have a leadership um, assessment that 2.8 million people have taken. So they've got some like evidence-based um, ideas yeah, about yeah. leadership. And they really define leadership, not so much as a trait or a characteristic or positional power, but they talk about what do leaders do. So this is a set of behaviors that you can practice. And as you practice them, you increase your sort of leadership IQ and your ability to change things around you. So um, the idea that you have to have somehow been granted leadership opportunities, they're like, no, you just act like a leader and then you can lead people. Um, I really love too that they say, like you said earlier, leadership is local. So we don't, when you think in your own life about people who have been good mentors to you or good leaders, it very rarely is somebody up there or out there it usually is somebody that you're having those um, interactions with on a daily basis and they're yeah. local to you. It's not like, you know, the big, the big boss, it's the people who you're surrounding yourself with. So the last thing I'll say in terms of setting the stage for this is they talk about leadership as a relationship where you are working with other people um, and that it's not a title. And they say there are five kind of, methods of behavior that if you will practice them, you will increase your leadership IQ and be able to make a difference in your teams, in your organization, in the work that you do. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? I am. Okay. So the first one is model the way. And when we talk about modeling the way, that is about a leader being very clear about what they value first and then second, discovering their voice to bring other people into a shared value. So we all kind of agree that this is the most important thing. Um, I was thinking about this in terms of so much of what they say is about being present and not being distracted by all the things. So reading this book actually was really helpful for me to be like, hold on a second. Yeah. What articulate Rachel, what do you value? I know what I value, but I don't always take the time to be like, here's my articulated list of what I value. Right. And once you do that, and then you look around at your team and you're like, well, what do you value? And then you kind of bring that together into this idea of here's our shared value. That's going to kind of guide our work. Does that make sense? It does. So I was thinking through things like, you know, I value, obviously I value higher education. I value supporting our at-risk students and the, the people who work um, to support them. I also value harmony and I value an encouraging team and autonomy. And just saying those things then helps me draw a line from how do I value harmony and how do I behave with my team so that they would say, for sure, Rachel values harmony. Here's how I would know. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, it's just thinking. I mean, uh, other things like you value efficiency, you you um, value creativity, right? Problem solving. Like yeah. And and what's neat is so when you think about the people who we're able to work with, how how people who also value those things come together, right? It, yeah. it reinforces then and creates kind of a microculture around right. you. So you should be able at the end of the day to say, here are the things that I did that show my personal commitment to our shared values of our team. Um, and one of the places where that's super critical is when things are not going well. Right. So if I value harmony, but my team sees when we have hardship that I'm awful and then I'm unkind to them. And then I'm like, whatever, you're out. I don't care about what's happening with you. That is a missed opportunity for me to say, this is something that's really important and you're going to know it because I'm going to show it to you in this critical incident. Um, so looking for those places where it's harder, 
but it has more weight because it is harder. So people will look at your behavior there and be like, oh, obviously you really mean that because this is a hard time to, to put that out. Yeah, that's good. The other thing that's really important about Model the Way is because your leadership is based only on your behavior, you have to be asking for feedback on that behavior regularly. So I say that I value this thing. Do you see that I'm valuing that thing? No, when you did this, it seemed like you actually liked drama. Oh, okay. Thank you so much for telling me that. Now I've got to go back and, and revisit how I would do that differently, right? I've never seen that in you, Rachel. I really don't like drama. I really, thank you. I really don't. No, no, it's maybe the worst thing a person could say, could say to me. Rachel, you love a good drama. I really don't. I really <laughs> take a pass on that. Um, okay. So I would just say, Matt, as I was reflecting on this, um, one of the places where I see this so often on a campus is, you know, when I'm teaching my student success funnel, identify, um, oh no, connect, connect, identify, connect, solve, and measure. The valuing of connection before solution is just a value that is so important to me, so important to so many of our listeners in the work that they're doing. And when you meet a person who has that the connection out and is just focusing on the solution, the ability to come in and say, here's how I would do that differently. I'm going to model for you how we are going to do relationship before we do solution. That's a great example of being like, I know what I believe and I'm going to show you how we're going to do that and bring you into that shared value when you see what a difference it makes for students. Right. Yeah. So I really, um, I've seen that so often on campus where when you can model that, then people are like, wow, that worked way better. I'm, I'm going to start doing it that way. Well, I love this one. The, the model, the way, when you think about, so our student success funnel and you, and you think about how do, how do we support students? How, how can we be more effective in guiding first gen through to graduation? This, this is, so we don't need positional power for this. We can buy our colleagues, the uh, culture code, right? We can hand that. In fact, got it sitting right here. We could we could hand that off to our friends and say, like, hey, let's just talk through this. Yeah. And that's that's a start for modeling the way. Yeah, for sure. So my action item for that one is just at the end of the day, when you're thinking about how did I set an example for others, what have I done today that demonstrates my personal commitment to our shared values? And I even think thinking about that within your office, within your team. I'm not talking about the university. I'm talking about in your office, on your team, what are your shared values and how do we point to things that you are doing that demonstrate commitment? And I don't like this one as much, but it's probably even more helpful. Where are the places where I am not demonstrating a commitment to those shared values? Yeah. Where I treated a student in a way that isn't doesn't underline how we think they should be treated, right? Good. Okay. The second one is inspire a vision. Inspire a vision is about being, being able to create a future goal or a future vision that everybody can kind of gather around. You want to have a really clear vision. You can move much faster if you have that clear vision. Um, and the book talks a lot about the way that you understand the vision is that you think about where you came from. You pick your head up and you look around um, you listen to others' ideas and concerns and wonderings, and then you can create this vision. And Matt, I want you to talk a little bit about this, but I would just say, I think our listeners, I don't know if they're doing it for themselves and for their team, but they are always doing it for students. We are sure. always talking to students about when you pass this class, when you graduate, yeah. when you become a doctor, when... We are constantly, and remember in the culture code, part of our belonging cues is we talk about our future relationship. When you get your PhD and come back to teach at this campus, right? It's a, it is a vision that you are giving them all of the time about what their future holds. I was just thinking about, um, is it, is it um, Morehouse that you were talking about? Yeah. So here's my quote for Morehouse. They say that they are always, let's see what it's, it's called um, messaging. They're always messaging to students about the future. And so they said so much so that at Morehouse, when they call on a student, they say, Mr. Jones, you're from Cleveland and could become a future congressman from Ohio. What can you tell us about the protections specified under the Civil Rights Act? 
which I love, right? Just speaking that future to our students all of the time and giving them a vision. And you and I have both had the experience of a faculty member saying, when are you going to get your PhD or when are you going to, to come back to this campus and being like, oh, I, that never occurred to me before. I can consider yeah. that, right? <clears throat> Super powerful. So this, this is one of those things, again, inspiring a shared vision when we're, when we don't have the positional power, but when, when we can imagine and we can, we can be creative with our colleagues about, so we did this with our, uh, in the career center, right? And just like, how do we change the, the culture of this university to be career minded and how can we influence not only students, but I mean, what you started then doing that in, in other people's classes where they invited you in just really, uh, thinking about, Yes, the president has their vision, and, and yes, there are these things that the board has agreed to, but but for us in the trenches and for the work when we're looking at students and what they need, hey, let's let's talk about how we can make a difference in that student's life in our office, how we can how we can start changing uh, this university. Yeah, I would be very curious to hear how many of our listeners have had those kind of conversations within their office and their team. Yeah. I think we probably have not done it in a couple of years because part of the um, hardship of all of your capacity being taken with what's happening right now is that you don't have an opportunity to have a, a cast a forward vision. Um, but it would be really interesting in an office just to say in the tutoring center, what is your vision for this for this area, right? For advising, what is your vision for this? I think it would be you have a lot of really great conversations. So your action item around this one is go to your teammates and your colleagues and ask them what is their vision for their position, for themselves, for their office, for the team. Just cultivate conversations around what ignites their passions. What do they need to thrive? How are you sharing in this purpose in the work that you're doing? And by listening to others, you can really say like, okay, we have a clear shared vision now and I'm going to align what I do to make sure that I'm constantly um, connecting to that vision and look at my colleagues work and be like, oh, I can see that you're connected to that as well. So I love that piece of inspiring a shared vision. All right. Yeah. The next one is challenge the process. And I don't know about you, Matt, people, there are kinds of people who relish challenging the process. And there are people who are like, I don't want to do that. Right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yes. You relish challenging the process. So this is the idea that you are changing the status quo, that you are like, I am going to seize every opportunity to improve, to make something happen, to respond differently, to have insight into what's going on, and to change things. You're taking initiative, even if things weren't assigned to you, you're like, I can make that better. I want to be engaged in that project. Let's think about how we could do that differently, right? Um, my example of this in counseling is always that if you are in a scenario where you have a script, so this usually happens with your spouse where you just know, I say this, you say this, I say this, you say this, we end up in the same place, right? Um, a counseling technique in terms of challenging the process is you just refuse to say the script line and you do something totally different and it can be totally unrelated. So I told you I did this one time with a client where I was like, you're always arguing with your mom. Next time in the middle of the argument, just say, I'm really sorry. I'm very hungry. Can I go? Can will you come to the kitchen with me while I pour a bowl of cereal? And the client thought I was crazy, but she did it. And the mom was so befuddled. She was just like, I don't even know what's happening. And then she what are we arguing that. about. Yeah. yeah. Why is this seem so like high, high stress? Right. You you clearly are unaffected by it. Thinking about the scripts that we have for how we respond to a student doing a thing or a student struggling with a thing or a colleague doing a thing or a scenario that happens and just saying, how could we do that differently? How could we break that and put it back together so that it actually makes sense? And you love that. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I, I just, it's the, you know, I, I really don't like things being static. It seems like we, we could just like we've said, pick a thing to improve, right? And and especially when we sit around and we're like, why is it got to? Why is it this way? 
Right. Why does it have to be this way? Well, it doesn't have to be this way. Now, the problem is in order to have effective change, to be able to really challenge the process, it a lot of, I mean, it requires some um, creativity, like to, to be able to, to think about. And I'm, I think for a lot of our friends, there's been with the burnout, it, it's kind of burnout is the anti-creativity, right? It it, you start to feel really, really um, status quo, st static. And so taking time, as we've talked about, to step back and, and think creatively, uh, again, talking with your colleagues about how could we, how could we solve this, um, change this, make this better. So, yeah, I love, I love that. It. There's a piece there around trust as well, which, you know, we're always talking about how do you create a trusting environment where it's you're allowed to fail. You can try new things. They may not work out. It's OK. No one's going to say I told you so or that was stupid or I knew it wasn't going to work or right. That kind of yeah. thing. And so, you know, the statistics in the book are like when employees feel safe in their position and with their team, there's a 347 percent increase in the probability of having a highly engaged employee when they're not afraid that they're going to get in trouble for everything. Right. There's a 154 percent increase in great work. And there's a 33 percent decrease in moderate to severe burnout. So just saying we're on the same team, we value the same things, and we're trying to solve problems together in a, a safe and trusted way will change the work that you're doing with your teammates. Sorry, I took a whole trip on that. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking about growth mindset and having the yeah. freedom and the flexibility to say, we are learning a hard thing right now. Just stick with me. It's not going to be perfect, but I'm working on it and we're going to perfect it as we go, which our team has so much grace for us on that. Um, we are quick movers. And so sometimes we move and then we're like, OK, we're going to do it differently next time. Right. And so they're always really we we have a trusting team that that allows us to be like, let's do it this way and then come back and sort of be iterative in that. Um, okay, so the action item as you are thinking about how you can challenge your process is just talk with your coworkers about what is going right, what is working really well in your office with your students and your people, and then say, what could we do differently going forward? And like I said, I don't even think it has to be like a whole strategic new architecture for how your office works. I think it could be like, what if we had a bowl of candy on the front desk? Literally. How would that change things? How would students perceive us differently? How would they uh, draw? How would we draw traffic into our office? It can be little things that you say. What if we tried something different? And how did that go? Right? Um, I was just reading a book about doing um, like ex little experiments that are not risky, and then being like, "How did that go? It went well. Okay, then we can do something bigger. Then we can do something bigger." And that is about building trust with your team. And saying, yeah. we're just going to take little risks together until we get to the place where we can take a bigger risk. All right. The next one is enabling others to act. This is about being generous with the people that you work with, promoting competence and confidence, giving um, your colleagues the freedom of choice which then provides them with the ability to um, develop competency and also kind of give them um, a clear view of their responsibilities and things that they can be in charge of. So I think of enabling others to act as like the absolute opposite of micromanagement, right? This is when you just go in and you're like, we. I do this all the time with, with everybody on the team where I'm like, here's what I want. And then Z is like, how do you want me to do that? And I'm like, Z, you are the right person to figure out how to do that. I can't even think of the genius thing that you're going to think of. You go do that thing. And then I'm going to just be thrilled with whatever you come back with. Right. It always works out for us when we're like that. I you know. know. Well, being surrounded by great people that you really trust to, to say, like, you have the skill set that I do not have. Go and please do that. Um, so I really love that. And I like being able to be generous. Um, I, it reminds me, so I'm thinking about not just in our work that we do, but also in our families as parents. When Lillian was very little, I would always say to her, I have confidence in you, right? She would say, but this thing is happening. What am I going to do? I have confidence in you. You're going to figure it out. And giving her that autonomy and vote of confidence then made her 
develop more competency because she believed that she could yeah. do what she she needed to. So anything you want to add to that one? No, I think what, well, I guess so. Um, you bringing this up as, so, you know, this is about everyday people, extraordinary leadership and starting at home is kind of a great idea, right? So how do we apply these, not just in our work, but in our life, in our home, so. Yeah, for sure. Also, sometimes, I mean, to be honest, sometimes enabling others to act just comes out of, I don't have capacity to do all the things for all the people all the time. I don't know how people can lead like that, right? It's like, I need to be able to say to others, you guys go do what you do because I have confidence in you, as opposed to being like, give that to me, give that one to me too, give that one to me too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. This this one seems easy to me, but I think that's because, you know, when you're surrounded by really good people who work really hard and they're really smart, it is easy. If you're in an environment where you're, if you don't do it, it's not going to be done right. True. I mean, that. That's where coming coming back to kind of the, the very beginning of this, of modeling the way, surrounding yourself with people who share your vision, yeah, uh, it's really important. But also, Matt, I mean, I'm just thinking about everybody. I know I have worked in an office before of six people where three of us worked and three of us didn't, right? And right. you just learn really, really early who are those um, partners for you creative champions who you can say, hey, I trust you to help me with this project. I want to do this thing. Will you lend your your um, gifts to that project? So I think even, even if you have some people on your team that you're like, eh, I sure would not trust them with that. There are people on your campus who have the same kind of aesthetic and value as you do that you could lean on um, to just say, like, you're doing a great job. I want to be on a team with you in some form or fashion. It was really interesting on this college visit yesterday, uh, ate in the cafeteria, and just to see, so not only all the students there, but what I really loved seeing was all, all the, the staff and faculty who were eating and, and just coming together. And, and I, I know um, some of them and their departments, and, and so different departments, but they're coming together and they're super engaged, having really looks like an amazing conversation. And so I just, when I think about what this could look like on, on a campus for our friends listening, that it doesn't have to be a, a, a conference room. It doesn't have to be a committee. It can, yeah. be, it can be eating in your cafeteria with, with like-minded colleagues. You know, Matt, it reminds me, this conference that we just went to, I was talking to a provost and she was saying, I am the best provost when I like my faculty members. And when I start to not like my faculty members, I have to go to their office and say, you study mushrooms, tell me about mushrooms. And then I have to just listen to their enthusiasm and their excitement and their passion. And I always learn something and I feel closer and connected to them. This person loves going to Rome. Tell me about your last trip to Rome, right? It's a really nice way to share that. Um, so when I'm thinking about enabling others, you have to know about them. You have to understand what they're learning and what they're thinking and what their experience is in order to kind of empower them in whatever they're doing. So yeah, go ahead. Well, I think it just goes right into the, into the last one here. So the encourage the heart piece. Yeah, it's so hard to encourage the heart if you don't know the heart. For sure. So encourage the heart is this idea that we are rewarding and praising other people, that we believe in their abilities, that we recognize their contributions and we celebrate their victories with them. Um, it's just a generous spirit that creates kind of a community for your team, for the people, local leadership that you are connected to and allows you to develop celebrations and friendships and fun. And one thing that I really love about this is that this book is like, these are not luxuries. It is not a luxury for you to be developing celebrations and friendship and fun and generosity to others. That is the way that you show up as a good leader in wherever your sphere of influence is. And so I don't know that we have to talk about this one too much because I feel like in student development, 
um, and, and in academics, in some cases, we do a really good job of appreciating each other and saying like, let's have a celebration for this thing and let's have this event. Um, but cultivating those friendships and celebrations, I think is really, really important. Well, I, I am convicted on this one. So I've seen this, um, did some consulting for a company and, um, Rick Lytle and I were, were talking to them about leadership things and, and um, Rick had this exercise where everyone had a, a sticky note and it was, so go write down a thing that you love the most about one of your bosses, someone who, who was a leader for you, write down something. And then he had this wall and it was on one side, it was, is this a matter of the heart or is this something of the, the head? So. I love that they generated X amount of dollars that, or they did this kind thing for me. Yeah. And so everyone wrote down a, a thing that stood out to them by a, a leader that they had. And then they went and they put these notes up on the board and it was all about the heart. And, yeah. and I think that's really powerful. So a, a great reminder, yes, it's important. Um, sometimes we feel like this comes easily, but, but really to be, to be mindful about this, to take that time, to, to really think about what, what is a way that I could encourage this person or tell them about um, what they're great at, right? That this is a thing that I see in you that we, I don't think you could do that enough. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was thinking about giving encouragement and feedback to your team. And I was just reading about how to do that really well. So our action item for this one is practice giving good feedback. And the three elements of good feedback are, first of all, you say it to the person in the presence of someone else. So instead of like in a staff meeting, me being like, um, hey guys, Matt did a really good job when he blah, blah, blah. You take out the he. And in staff meeting, I would say, Matt, you did an awesome job when you worked on that project, blah, 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 blah. So you, you say it directly to them. You don't refer to them. You're always saying it to them. Um, the second thing is that you are as specific as possible. So you don't just say, you did a really great job when you worked on that project, thanks. You say, the time that you took to make sure every element in that project was right and the way that you shared, right, just as detailed. You cannot be detailed. You cannot be too detailed. Because yeah. what you're showing there is attention and care to what they actually contributed and not just a like, oh, yeah, you did a great job. Thanks so much. So I really love that. And then the third one, which I think is really interesting, you say it to them, you are very detailed, and then you're non-attributive, which means you don't tell them who they are. You tell them how you experience them. So you don't say, wow, Matt, you're really generous. Because internally, the person can be like, I'm actually not generous. I only did that because blah, blah, blah. Or that's not true about me. I'm sorry you're confused about me, but I'm really not a generous person. Whereas if you say to them, when you spent all of that time explaining that Excel document to me, it really helped me. It would have taken me hours to figure that out. And the fact that you were willing to give me your time was incredible uh, in my work in this project. That's a thing that's much harder to refute than you're generous with your time, right? Because you might be like, I'm really not generous with my time. So direct, um, specific, and non-attributive. That's a hard one. That's a hard word to say. All right. So I've given you action items as we've gone along. Um, I hope that this is encouraging to you. I would recommend that you read this book. I think you could read it with your team. I think it would be really helpful. It's pretty easy to read. There's like bite-sized pieces that you could go through. But I want to encourage you to think about your sphere of leadership. Think about it as behaviors that you can practice. Think about how you're already doing that for your students and how it can change the work and your relationships with your team members and the sort of feeling that you have um, in your job when you say, there are things I can do that are going to help sort of shape um, all of those different elements. Anything you want to add? Well, Ty's right. Well, the only thing I, I would add, I, I hope this is helpful. I'm, I'm just thankful right now. It's a, it's a great season for reflection, right? So as we're heading toward Thanksgiving, this is a great, this, these five uh, practices are great things to, to reflect on and start weaving into your work 
as the semester comes to an end, as you're in the thick of uh, getting students encouraged and registered and all that ways that that you can start putting these uh, into practice. So. And Matt, don't you think that probably, I mean, this is true for me, as I go through those five things, I'm like, I'm very good at that. And I'm also like, I I need to work on that one. That's a place where I'm not spending enough time and enough, enough sure. energy. And so even just having those five things in front of you and saying, I do a great job at this one, but these I need to work on um, and making it actually a practice of yours to do those things, I think is, that's half the battle right? Just having the assessment that you can do of yourself and then saying, now I'm going to start focusing on this is, is half of the difficulty. So it's good. All right, guys, thank you for joining us. Um, I think happy Thanksgiving. I don't think is next week Thanksgiving. Yes. Yes. Okay. Happy Thanksgiving. We will be, be back after that uh, with another episode of cap and gown, but I hope that you all have a restful, peaceful time with your families or friends or people you love next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Thanks.